and career paths and how these two really interesting people that are in marketing and advertising, um, Emeka is our head of global marketing, uh, and Tanya's just joined LinkedIn, actually, uh, and they both took very different career paths but are in the same world. And I find it really interesting when people do things not in the same way and when they uh, take lots of curves and turns to get where they're going because that's some of the biggest questions I get on my Instagram when I throw it out there do you guys have questions today is people are really anxious to get to the finish line and I always tell people like it's a journey and um, they might look like young chickens up here but they're not so young they've made <laughs> I mean, this guy's like got his little patch on and everything, and um, we think it's just for show. But um, but they've had an interesting journey, and so a lot of people get focused on the end experience. And what they're going to talk to you about is really enjoying the experience along the way, because it's how you learn about where you want to end up. And um, and so I'm going to turn it over to them with that. Hello, can you guys hear me? Is this on? It's for the podcast. Okay. So. Okay. Well, you should go first. We're in your house. It's, it's your tibby. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um. Hi, my name is Mecca. I am the marketing guy. I guess the VP of global marketing for Tibby. Uh, I guess I should talk about myself, right? Like yeah. my that's the deal career yeah. path. Uh, should I start from like the beginning, like? Way, yes. way, way, way. You were born <laughs> in a small. Way from the beginning, because you had a really different path. Yeah. Yeah, than yeah, yeah. Uh, Tanya, so okay. I think it's interesting. All right, well, born and raised in Brooklyn. Uh, I'm from a little neighborhood called East New York in Brooklyn. Uh, it's a little neighborhood that you couldn't really like, you couldn't, uh, the label of being affluent was would never be <laughs> prescribed <laughs> to this neighborhood. It's a neighborhood where there's a lot of good people, but the main export is, I guess, poverty. So it gets a little cannibalistic. So I kind of grew up with a real uh, anxiety that comes from being in an environment where m everyone is trying to get over on each other in some certain, in a, mm. in a, in a way, you know, because you become that, that kind of cannibalistic person when you are only, uh, the, uh, the only 
purview is the, your actual environment. You only see other people in your neighborhood. You really don't leave your neighborhood. You uh, and the only means of uh, of coming up is off of other people and other existences, other things within your environment. So I grew up in this neighborhood uh, where, you know, my mother would tell me not to look out the window at night or, you know, I would go to sleep to the sound of gunshots every night. So like, I came up in this, in, this, uh, in this neighborhood, but I was around a lot of good people, especially uh, my parents who were very much uh, proponents of education first. Uh, they really kept me sort of sheltered from everything that was going on around me. And I went to a lot of like really good schools as a kid. So that really got me some mobility and got me outside of my neighborhood for as much as I could possibly get out of the neighborhood. And through that process, I really got to see a lot of things. I was, as soon as I got my first Metro card, I was in the streets heavy. I was out, I was, uh, I was cutting school to go to the Met. You know, I was like, I was hanging out in Soho as like a like a thirteen year old it was just like taking everything in, and uh, through going to, to a bunch of schools that were like very uh, heavily academic, I learned very quickly that I hated school. <laughs> I was not a big fan. I went to school every day. I had the I won the award for best attendance every year. Yay. How, <laughs> but I didn't do anything. I'd, I barely graduated high school, um, and in leaving high school, I actually didn't apply to any colleges. I'd had no inkling on actually going to college. As soon as my parents found out that I didn't go to <laughs> apply to any colleges, my mother wrangled me by the neck and dragged me <laughs> over to like a CUNY school where I went for like a semester, and then I was like, this is not my thing. I'm not going to go to school. So I kind of was like, well, I'm going to figure it out. I really always had this this uh this almost psychotic self-confidence about myself where I knew that whatever I was going to be doing in my life I was going to be good. And it, my version of good didn't have to be someone else's version of good. I wasn't really pointed towards trying to find a white picket fence or, you know, the nuclear family or anything like that. I just kind of wanted to be creative in my own right, do what I wanted to do and uh sort of sustain myself upon the things that I really love to do, uh, which was, uh, uh, I loved fashion, I loved music, I loved uh, writing, and I sort of found m ways to, to incorporate those things into my life and really try to like, to exploit those talents as much as I possibly could. So I worked retail for a long time. I worked retail, like my first job ever was at Burlington Coat Factory on 23rd Street and 6th. I was selling ladies' coats. <laughs> Um, um, and from then on, I kind of figured, well, I have to put myself in the place where I want to be. I have to surround myself with the people who are doing the things that I want to do. I always have to be a person who is pretty active within the environments that I wanted to be in. So I would like leave work and then go hang out at Stussy and Supreme because all my friends worked there. So I just go leave work, hang out with my friends, go skate, things like that. And I would go and I would beg for a job at Stussy 
Supreme Union, like all the like the 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 boutiques that were going that were like really prominent at the time, but you know nobody really knew about them at the time. Streetwear wasn't a thing, or at least wasn't a thing that people like paid much attention to. So, but for me, that was the biggest thing in the world. I loved like the world of sneakers, the world of streetwear. Like I was super heavy into all those all those things. Um, and then I like I would just beg for a job and. Uh, I ended up working at Stussy for a little while, ended up working at Supreme for a little while, ended up just like bouncing from retail job to retail job, uh, uh, worked at Barney's for a while, I, I worked at Bathing Ape, I worked at a bunch of like different retail spots around the city, but my first job in I would guess like in a marketing capacity was I worked for a... Um, I worked for a man who owned a bunch of, of streetwear boutiques, little uh, small uh, sneaker boutiques. He was a person who, uh, at the the best I can say, that he made his money in very unscrupulous ways. But he was able to channel them into scrupulous businesses that he <laughs> used as his uh, as the face. So, uh, how long ago was this? Money laundering. Uh, <laughs> I would. I mean, I think money laundering for him would kind of be like a like a on the safe side. <laughs> I try to like, I try to keep those details so to keep him out of the. <laughs> my bad, my bad. But um, but yeah. So I remember my, when I was working there, he never referred to me by my name. He always called me cool guy. So he was like, cool guy, cool guy. He said, and he's like, so I was the, um, I was his sneaker buyer. I was his cool translator, as he called it. Anything that he needed to do in the realm of like communicating with people who were trying to uh, like make money within the sneaker uh, industry, fashion industry, uh, music industry, I would end up having to like ride along with him and like be his like uh, his cool guy translator. I would tell him like whether an idea was cool or not. Whether something that he was trying to invest in, like, oh, is this cool? He would invest in that. So uh, he, at the time, owned the licenses for Sean John Footwear and for Rockaware Footwear. So I would have to go with him to meetings with Jay-Z and meetings with Puffy and be like, oh, this is a cool shoe. You should you should do this. This is a cool thing. You should do this. So very early in my career, I kind of had access and, uh, and uh, exposure to you know, high-level personalities and people who were moving things and people who were changing industries and things. So it really got me to a point where I, it became de rigueur, became pretty normal for me to see people who were like, uh, to not get starstruck by people, not to, to, to not feel as any way, but this person is, is a conduit to something else. They're not like this uh, personality to me. So. Worked for him for a while. Uh, ended up leaving there and getting into a small streetwear brand. A friend of mine had a small streetwear brand, and he convinced me to work with him because he was like, well, you know everybody in the city. You understand fashion. You understand like the, uh, the, the conduit between commerce and, and culture. And he, he was like, well, why don't you just work in marketing? And I really had no idea what marketing was at the time. I had to Google it. I was like, well, what do people in marketing do? So. And you realized it was what you were doing kind of all along. I realized that, like, um, that my in my course in life, 
I met so many people between like, especially in working retail, like, and especially high level retail, you start and you end up meeting a lot of people who, you know, have multifaceted. Everybody's doing something different. Everybody has like a different path in life. And some of those paths converge at a certain point. And it's a is being able to understand what, uh, you know, actually being able to exploit your connections, being able to connect people to other people. And, and I've, I've realized that my lot in life was to be a connector, was to be somebody who was able to uh, survey the landscape and say, well, this belongs here. And that understanding sort of, it, it, I feel like that's what got me where I am today, where I'm not someone who is a, uh, I don't have the pedigree of a of a VP of marketing, but I do have like the skill set because of what I was able to, uh, to you know, to to see and and, and cause to transpire. Um, but so from then on, in that in that role, in a very rudimentary like low level role, I was making zero dollars a, a a week. Like I was making just enough to be at the bottom of the poverty line, but um, but. It, I was working there during the day, and at night I was working at UPS. I was I was uh, I was loading trucks, but I knew that this is what I wanted to do. So I wanted to, needed to supplement what I was doing in that portion of my life with something that is totally like, you know, it was it was strictly just to pay my bills, just to to keep myself fed. Uh, so I would work there from like ten to seven and then get on the train to the last stop on the L train to the UPS depot and go load trucks until like some odd hour in the morning, sleep for like two hours and then like go right back to work. So in doing this, I was working for the small company and I was giving the opportunity to like use their resources to help my friends do the things that they needed to do, think of things they wanted to do and help my creative friends and like kind of like lift them up. So, uh, one project that I did with this company, I helped this uh, this dude Kid Cudi put out his first mixtape. I helped uh, Wale put out his first mixtape. I helped a bunch of people within like the realms of music, but you know, at the time, like Kid Cudi was like sleeping on my couch at the time, you know. So like, or like Wale, like he was taking the boat bus back and forth from DC to to record his mixtape and things like that. So like, which I, I'm sorry, I just want to interject here that when I'm saying like you're kind of living in the moment until you get to where you want to be. When you were working with those guys, mm -hmm. like you didn't know who was sleeping on your couch at no, the time. No. You know, like you guys were all just like <laughs> doing your thing. in it. You're yeah. doing your right. thing. And but I had no inclination to like create something that I thought would stand the test of time. I was just doing what I thought was best at the moment. I was doing what I was supporting what I loved in that moment. I knew that I love this music and I want other people to hear it. So I'm going to support this in any way that I possibly can. Uh, it wasn't in like a long-term goal to say like, hey, I'm gonna manage this artist or I'm gonna like do something big or anything like that. It's really what was integral to me, it's what felt right. So, uh, you know, so you end up using your own resources to try to, uh, to support the things that you love. So I was doing this at the time and the, the products that I was working on started blowing up. And so people started reaching out to me and saying, well, we understand that you were kind of, they used to call me like the rapper whisperer. <laughs> like, I was the dude who was able to like, 
uh, connect rappers with brands. So, um, so brands started reaching out to me. So like Nike, Reebok, Timberland, they started reaching out to me and saying, hey, can you like help us connect with this artist? Or can you find an artist for us? Or can you introduce us to this audience? Like that's the, the main thing for them was like connecting to young audiences to what now we would say like, like how brands are trying to connect with Gen Z now, like in the same realm, I was trying to do that through, throughout the conduits of like music and uh, other forms of culture. So, and at the same time, I started doing other things like I was writing. So I started writing for Hypebeast. I started writing for Complex. And I was writing copy for a bunch of brands. So I was writing copy for like Levi's and Covassier and a whole bunch of like di- other different brands just to kind of like supplement my income. And then um, this rapper named Pusha T reached out to me and he was like, well, I'm trying to start my own clothing brand. And he's like, can you help me start my, start my thing? And as I was like sure but I had no idea what the hell I was doing but it's really just about like accepting the opportunity and learning on the job you know I wouldn't want to belie to anybody that I knew what I was doing but I also not gonna tell them I don't so I kind of so I just learned on the job this is how you start a clothing brand. This is how you launch a clothing brand. This is the 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 processes of doing it. This is like how do you work with production? How do you work with uh, with the record label? How do you work with uh, you know his entourage and things like that? And, and being able to put so, things like that together. And he dropped his clothing brand. He his clothing brand came out and it did well. It did well enough that the parent company reached out to me and said, "Well, can you do that again?" So uh, they made me director of entertainment marketing for this subsidiary of like, it was just, it was just a production house. It's a bunch of guys with money who were like, well, we're gonna pump money into brands and hopefully if we can find the right thing, it'll work. And um, so they were like, well, we want you to go out and find the right person to make another brand. So happenstance, I ran into like TI at a, an event in yeah. Vegas or something like that. And I was just straight up, I was like, yo, you want to start a clothing brand? He was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we started a brand called Aku. It did really well for him. It did really well for the parent company, but it didn't do well for me because I didn't get paid anymore. <laughs> so uh, so that was the first time I ever was like, I'm quitting. I quit this job. So I quit. I it was that psychotic self-confidence that I had in myself that I knew things were going to work out. I was still writing for a bunch of publications. I was still doing a lot of extracurricular things. I was getting a lot of freelance projects. So I was like, I'm going to be good. The recession was hitting. Things started drying up, started getting a little scared. Um, but that didn't deter me from anything. At the same time, when I was doing that, I was also, um, so a friend of mine worked at this uh, at this radio station called Hot 97, and every year he, in exchange for me getting him graphic design jobs with a bunch of different streetwear brands, he would give me tickets to uh, Hot 97's festival called Summer Jam that they did every year. So he would give me about like 10, 20 tickets every year, parking passes, like front row, like the whole like the like the gold package. So he would give me a bunch of tickets, and I never went. 
I would just sell the tickets on Craigslist so I would make my money, <laughs> so I would make my rent for like the rest of the, of the summer. Um, and one year, I go over to his house and he's playing music by this artist, um, this kid named Danny Brown. And I was like, this is great. Who is this kid? And he sent me like five mixtapes of this kid's stuff. And, I, and uh, not, not too long later, I called him up and I said, you know what? I gotta make sure that people hear this. I, he can't put out another project and people not hear it. So I called the kid up and I said, yo, I wanna work with you. And he was like, no. <laughs> he's, he's like, I have, I have management, I'm good, thank you. So I called him up again, I said, you know what, well just send me some music and I'll show you what I can do with it. So he sent me music and I used all my music connections to get him into like magazines, to get him on uh, all the, the, the blogs that I was writing for, I would just write articles about his music. All of the friends that I had who worked in, in music and in, in, um, in publishing and, uh, you know, for different magazines, I would just send them his music and I'd make sure that they all heard it. And uh, I was reading because I had no idea what managers of artists do. Uh, I had to look it up and I, it said that managers of artists generally deal with the label and get people signed. So called him up and I said, what, if you wanted to get signed to a label, what label did you sign to? He said, I either wanted to sign to XL Records because uh, Vampire Weekend was an XL Records and he, wanted, he loved Vampire Weekend, or he wanted to go to Fool's Gold Records because they had really big parties in New York and, that's, <laughs> and he just wanted to go to parties. So I knew the owner of Fool's Gold Records, A-Track, and I called him up and... I asked him this to, about this rapper, just like, you, you want to, you know, check him out? Later on that week, he said, you know, I'll sign him. So we signed Fool's Gold Records, like, that week. Uh, the next week, we went out to stop by Southwest. We slept on somebody's floor for, like, a good week, uh, just doing shows, multiple shows. We were doing shows, and, like, four people were showing up. Maybe, like, ten people were showing up, and they were just they showed up to throw bottles. So it was a real uh, process, but... Um, we put out a mixtape. It got on the, all of the uh, the best lists of the years, you know, like the Rolling Stones, it's like that. It's like it made it to like the top of the the best of lists, and it ended up like blowing up. And we started touring. So I'm like, out in the world, a person who had no idea what they were doing, and I'm just like, in Australia, <laughs> like trying to figure out how to manage an artist. I'm like counting his the his uh, per diem that they gave me in cash <laughs> and I keep it in like a little tin under my pillow it was, it was it was a weird process that I now started I was now like an artist manager and I had no inkling of ever I never thought that would ever happen and then so within the course of that you end up like meeting a lot of people you end up meeting a lot of artists especially like on the festival scene everybody becomes very like it's a very cohesive unit. Everybody who come, who's coming out at any certain time, like a generation of artists, everybody kind of knows each other because they're all doing the same shows. We're all in the same festivals. So um, I just started meeting a lot of people and a lot of people started like reaching out to me, being like, hey, you're the guy who can connect people and brands. 
so I started working with a di- bunch of different artists that that were, we were doing festivals with, like you know Action Bronson and uh, Macklemore and uh, uh, Kendrick and like a lot of bunch of these guys. We just all became really cool, and we just artists started, all started working together. And then within the course of that, a friend of mine uh, said, "Well, I have this kid. He has one song, and uh, he really wants to be a rapper." And he's, can you help him like put his thing out? So, um, so that night, I mean, not too long after, I met ASAP Rocky. So Rocky literally had run one song, and we were, and we heard the song. Of me and a friend of mine, and we're like, "Well, this kid has is dope. He has good potential. He's a really good kid. Let's make sure he puts something out." So we just we would take him to the studio every night and we would record like every night we would just go hang out and we would record we'd be in studios we would like send cars to his house to make sure that he made it to the studio because he sleeps until four o'clock every afternoon uh but we didn't have any money to do any of that stuff we we couldn't afford to do it we were just investing ourselves in something that we believed in and uh he gets signed he blows up and we start touring, and I put my first tour together. It was uh, Danny Brown, ASAP Rocky, uh, Kendrick Lamar, Schoolboy Q, and that was the first tour that I was like, "I'm here every day. We are. I'm your tour manager. I'm counting your money. You need money. Here you go. A kick that girl out the room. We need to get out of here. It was like that sort of thing. I was like, so a lot of people have me in their phone as Rap Dad. Because so, I was the guy who was like, you like, oh, you need, do you need to eat? <laughs> are you, are you hungry? Like, I was the ordering pizzas every night, like that kind of guy. He, so he could use your help right now. I, think. I can use <laughs> his help. <laughs> he definitely make can. A few calls to Sweden <laughs> right. right now. That's right. I don't think my calls will mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the, so like. That sort of experience, and really, I started immersing myself within the music industry. So that I was like, "Well, this is the thing I'm going to be doing now. This is the thing I'm probably going to be doing now for the rest of my life." So um, I got doing touring a lot and like working with a bunch of artists, um, and then meeting a bunch of different other artists. Uh, people started re- reaching out to me for bigger acts started reaching out to me because now I was a guy who was able to still connect artists and commerce, but now was able to do it on a larger level. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I started touring with a bunch of different acts. So like I would do shows with like J Cole and, uh, Drake and Prince. Mm -hmm. I toured Prince for a little while. Like I started doing a lot of, lot bigger things, but, I got burnt out really quickly because I was just out on the road all the time. I was never home. I wasn't eating right at all. I was withering. <laughs> I was a shell of a man. Um, and I knew that uh, for a lot of the things that we had to do, I needed to find corporate sponsorship. Like for most of the stuff that we wanted to do, I needed to find like a larger brand who was like, I'm willing to put up money for this tour or for this album that you tr- guys are trying to do. Because no, we didn't have any money. Like as, as much as we were doing, we were taking that money and investing it back in. Like we were all broke. Mm-hmm. So um, 
I knew that in order for me to further my career, and not even further my career, because I wasn't even thinking about my career, I just knew that in order for culture to be a little bit more uh, like robust, that uh, there needed to be somebody who was a benefactor for cultural like for 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 positive cultural change for to be like a positive cultural contagion in this world that somebody kind of needed to be the person who was like i am choosing the right things because if you looked at uh corporate culture on on a whole the the you know, corporate culture sort of invests itself into the things that are maybe the most popular, but not maybe the the best things. Mm -hmm. So it's like they'll definitely take something that is a bad idea and promote a bad idea because they think that people will love this bad idea. And I kind of saw myself as a person of of at least marginal taste that would be able to help, uh, help usher in things that I felt like were positives. So I knew that in order to do this, I kind of needed to get onto the agency side because the the agency side is where all the money's at. The agencies hold all the cards. So a friend of mine worked at a small agency. He owned a small agency, sorry, and he um, he had Nike as a client. And he brought me in, said, you know, you're a guy who can help Nike to connect with uh, with the audience that they want to connect with, which was like tastemakers and you know uh, what we would call influencers now and such. And I worked with him on Nike for a while, and then they got Beast by Dre as a client, and then Beast by Dre called me in to be the cultural strategy head, or I don't even remember my title. Uh, So I did that for a little while, started working on like bigger projects. I was working on projects with like the Kardashians and like, you know, LeBron and things like that, and things that were way out of my purview (laughs) and not things that I ever thought that I would work on. And then, yeah, and then things just started like happening from there. Like more people started contacting me. Bigger, uh, bigger brands started contacting me. So I'm working for doing things with Facebook and with Hulu and like a lot of like bigger brands. And slowly, like now, agencies are reaching out to me. All the agencies that I never would have even thought of working with, they started reaching out to me. And I started like actually like getting a career working on the agency side. And agency things started happening. I was working for an agency called VaynerMedia for a while. I was uh, head of uh, confections. I was working with like Oreo and like Sour Patch Kids and and, and things like that. And then uh, Amy found me and plucked me from obscurity. Obscure. That's exactly how I would describe you. And now I'm here. Okay, so that's okay. So I'm sure, like, when you guys heard Emeka talking, you had this vision of like this person just falling down this tunnel, right? Like, whatever was coming, you were just like game for it. And you kind of had a different path. Yes, I will say there are no celebrities in my story. Um, I, I have not been on tour with anyone yet. Um, but so you listen. I listen. You listen. Yes, to those yes. Guys. So, so my story does not start in New York. It starts in the metropolis of Oklahoma. Um, and, and really, I mean, growing up for me, you know, I grew up in a very middle class family neighborhood, um, not overly diverse. So, for me, especially my parents, like black Midwestern slash Southern parents, they were like, "You got to go to school and get a job." Like that was really what I grew up. It wasn't like this idea of marketing or advertising wasn't really a thing for me. 
um, while Mecca was on tour with Elvis and such. I, I was, I was, I was not doing that. So, so for me, you know, I went to the University of Oklahoma, and for me, it was about okay, I'm going to get a degree in something stable to get a job to get out of Oklahoma. That's that's really was really my only kind of goal or plan. I, at first, I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. Maybe I'll do this, but it was like be a lawyer, doctor, finance, or whatever stable job that was on Dallas at the time, the TV show. <laughs> so, 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 so my my major was actually accounting and finance. I was my my mind. I was going to be this really badass CFO at some big company that I traveled around the world doing fancy things, but I didn't I didn't really know what that meant. I was just like it just seemed like I'd make a lot of money doing it. So when it came time to, to graduate from the great University of Oklahoma, um, <laughs> yes, 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 there are more than one, two or three black people there. Um, no, I was just interviewing. So I was interviewing for accounting jobs, I was interviewing for finance jobs, and then one company, there was a role in consulting, and I thought, that sounds super cool, I don't know what that is. Um, at the time, it was called Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture. And it was like, okay, you just need to be smart, good with people, want to travel, and work in any, any kind of industry. And I thought, check, check, check. I'm going to get a check. <laughs> so so, um, so I, I went into consulting. That was my first job. And I remember I was probably four years into it, and my parents still thought I was in accounting. So those of you that are old enough that remember Arthur Anderson... Anderson Consulting was the other side of that. So when all that Arthur Anderson stuff went down, my, my dad called me. He was like, are you going to jail or are you moving back home? That was literally what he said to me. I was like, no, 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 I'll work on the other side. But, 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 now, but seriously, the consulting side was a good gamble for me because it, it, one, took me out of my comfort zone. I was in spaces I probably had no business really being in. I, you know, my first client, one of my first clients was 3M in Minneapolis, and another client was like British Telecom. I got the chance to go to London. That was the first time I ever been outside the country. I was not that person that in high school went backpacking across Europe or whatever people were doing. So consulting allowed me to see the world. I mean, kind of to your point of your story of like, I was in this space, and they were like, oh, can you go to London? I'm like, I don't have a passport. You're like, aren't you 22 years old? I'm like, yeah. I am, but, but, it, but it was, but the consulting was great because it allowed me to use the very analytical part of my brain, but again, consulting is about relationships. It's about going in and solving a problem, and you know, sometimes you're kind of faking it till you make it because a lot of it was kind of like business challenges or process challenges or organization challenges, and there were things that I didn't really study for in school, but I thought, this, this is cool, this is great. So. Did that for a few years, still no celebrities in that story. And then the late 90s, early 2000s, everyone was leaving going to agencies. At that time, digital agencies were new. It was like, we're doing digital banners. There was no Instagram, Facebook, any of that. It was just the World Wide Web, the internet. And brands wanted to be on the internet. So. Um, a partner from the consulting company I was with went to an agency and said, come join us. We're going to make a lot of money. You can wear jeans and shorts and ride around in scooters. And you're getting like all this money and fake stock options. And you're going to be so rich and all. I was like, that sounds cool. I was living in Dallas at the time. And it was, uh, 
it was a weird awakening because I didn't know what marketing, let alone marketing and advertising online meant. And one, I'd never been around creatives. So to me, people like Mecca who think visually and there were artists and drawing and were temperamental and wanted to have their whiteboard space. Like I, I didn't even know who those people were. It was kind of like, I don't understand how you think and what are you talking about? Um, but again, it was good, it was, it was cool. It was like really great brands to work with. Um, a lot of the CPG food brands, so like Kraft, I remember like Kraft Cheese was a client. I thought that was so cool. Like mac and cheese, let alone how bad those, those, those products are. You're like, oh wow, I'm working on things that I have actually grown up and known. And I was like a project manager, account person. And just in, in the agency world, you kind of go in and you just roll with it. There's no real pathway. And Amy started her career in that world. You kind of just go in. Your goal is to grow clients, grow the business, build relationships. You're working insane hours. You're just really, you're trying to understand the client's business, but you're trying to figure out a way to use it using creativity. And sometimes creativity could be something online or content or events, um, helping them rebrand themselves or launching new brands. So although I didn't study it, it was a way of like, oh, I, I dig this world. This is, this is cool and interesting. And so I stayed in the digital world for a while, kind of stayed there, agencies in Dallas, worked a little bit in San Francisco, went back to London for a bit. You know, I had to, you know, that great time having my own flat in London where I didn't have to pay for it. It was the good old days. But when you were joining in and the internet was just taking off, did you, like, were people in the room smarter than you or was everyone kind of faking it and you had to go learn Everyone well? was faking it. Yeah. Absolutely everyone. Because at that time, no one, there were no majors where people were majoring in internet or social media or online advertising in any way. It was just people that were either marketing account people, business people, we were, we were all faking it. Because we had creatives that didn't even know how to actually design for the web. Yeah. So things were just clunky and would break, and it was, it was just terrible user experiences. Um, yeah, we were just making it up, yeah. seriously. And again, to Megha's point, sometimes you do have to fake it till you make it, but you keep trying to learn and grow and evolve and be better and be, and be smarter than the clients. Because at that time, clients didn't have agency people on staff, so they didn't know. They were like, okay, I have $5. Help me spend this $5 to make $5 million. Can you do that in two days? Thanks, bye. <laughs> like, that was really kind of the ask. Um, that's why you end up working 14-hour days, six days a week, having no life. Um, so I made a pivot. I, you know, I did a bit in grad school because I thought, okay, I'm going to go get my MBA and figure out what's next. So I went and did that uh, program through Duke where I was able to continue working and did the MBA thing and went right back to the agency world because for me, the agency world allowed me progress, money, and it was like a pathway of like, I'm gonna grow, keep growing, keep growing, keep growing. And you kind of get into um, a rhythm of it that's not sometimes altogether healthy because I think agencies sometimes can be so focused on the clients, the people within the agencies suffer because your life's not really on your own timing. <laughs> it's about the clients. And those of you that are clients in the room, call your agency people, check on them, because they're not right. Hug them. Love them, yes, yeah. it's, it's hard, it's hard. So, I mean, for me, I think I got into a, a thing of, um, I enjoyed the marketing, I enjoyed advertising, I loved being with clients, I liked the diversity of industries I was working in, but it also felt like I got burnt out and I kind of stayed in it much longer than I probably should have because I started not 
enjoying the work, but also I was dealing with food a lot. I was very much in the CPG world. So I was the person dealing with cookies and crackers, Oreos, planters. I always say, you know, my, my vices in life is that I've helped sell sugary snacks to kids. I, I made that seem cool. That was me. Um, spirits. I made liquor seem cool on some of those Diageo brands. I even did a very, very short stint, which I am so disheartened to say, on Philip Morris. Um, that was where I was like, I'm really selling my soul to the that devil. That must have been so hard to... It, it was. It was a time when Philip Morris, who had renamed Altria, they were... Um, I remember the project where the government was going to... There was some thing that was in process where they were going to make everything that was tobacco-based in black and white, thinking that if they put everything in black and white online, that young people wouldn't want to use the products. That's so dumb. They, <laughs> But that was our project at the time, and then the government killed the project because they didn't, wow. it didn't go through. But, yeah, we were trying to sell early days e-cigarettes, and it was fully targeted at young people of color and females. Wow. And I remember being in that room going, Not good. Girl, get it together. Um, so, but, yeah, but luckily I got outside of that. But, but agency world can be fun. It, it was great. Um, but again, I think the food part, if I had been working on Nike or touring with ASAP Rocky and the Kardashians, but that wasn't me. For, and for me, I was very much, I was that person was like, I, gotta do, I, have to, I was very much a, a linear person. Like, I got to get promoted. I'm going to get promoted. I'm going to become VP of such and such. And then I'm going to run this office and then managing director. And then, you know, I, I did reach those goals and I was running agencies here in New York, but I just wasn't interested in the work as much. I felt like the creativity was suffering and that we were just marketing and advertising a bunch of junk. And also I think the people and the quality of life was starting to really wear on me. I had always loved fashion. I've always loved creativity. Uh, luckily through um, a friend of mine, Sherry McMullen, Shop McMullen, plug. Yes, everything I'm wearing is McMullen. But she, I, she helped me, you know, she introduced me to Tibby, introduced me to Amy. But fashion and working with Sherry and even doing things like this allowed me to kind of help my brain think outside of food and just reminded me that there was other things outside of food. And I had and it was OK to be like, I don't want that anymore. I want something different. So I quit my job and <laughs> I said, the agency world, I'm leaving it behind. I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. And in some in some ways, I felt very much like, oh, my God, I've spent 16 years in this industry. I'm a failure that I'm just like, I don't want to do that part of creativity anymore, but I know I am creative in other ways. And through a friend who's here. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, that, you know, that again, you know, going back to just taking advantages of situations that come to you and not being afraid to step out on faith going, I don't know what this is about, but I'm going to continue to check it out. Um, invited me to something at LinkedIn. And I thought, well, LinkedIn, that's where you go find jobs, right? Like, that's what I know it about. Like, that's where I'm going to go to LinkedIn to find a job. Not ever thinking about LinkedIn being a $2 billion marketing machine. And I kind of thought, huh, oh, yeah, there's half a billion people on LinkedIn. They're not getting in trouble for data breaches. Most of us are pretty you know, honest on our LinkedIn profiles. You're probably sharing more on your LinkedIn profile than you realize. So as a consumer, huh, 
this might be something. So that was the way and how I found my way into to LinkedIn. Um, you know, right now I've kind of switched gears and using my creativity to work with small businesses and small agencies um, with LinkedIn marketing products to be able to use that data to use as another marketing tool to then help agencies use their creativity, hopefully for good. So um, it's been an interesting, more linear pathway, but also just something very different in how you, you can get to marketing and advertising, starting out from being in Oklahoma, majoring in accounting and finance, and and still ending up in a, a pretty okay spot, I will say. So that's my story. Well, because I think <laughs> one of the interesting things is you guys were talking and that I always like to emphasize is that both of you guys were okay with just really kind of like other people can see it as struggling and other people can see it as like, yeah, it's just my life. Like I'm living my life. And, you know, that, um, that's what gets you through all that to just keep on your journey. You know, you have to be, you always talk about like, you got to kind of be prepared to sleep on someone's couch if, if that's what it takes. Yeah, I'd be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I always would tell my mom, my mother would always be like, well, why don't you just go get a regular job? <laughs> and it's like, if I got a regular job, I'd be doing that regular job for the rest of my life. Yeah. yeah. So like if I had not like had faith in myself, <laughs> if I didn't have faith in myself, then who would have had faith in me mm -hmm. to do something? So it was just really about me trying to do what, I can until I can do what I want. Yeah. You know? And and finding your path in that because every everyone's path is their own and doesn't have to be duplicative of someone. So yeah, and just being okay with I'm gonna do this or I don't wanna do this, but it takes a lot of bravery to say to know not what you don't want. That for me was a big aha moment later in my life going, I don't I'm not sure exactly what I want, but I know it's not that. And that was like I, I, I should ask my therapist for lots of money back. <laughs> so I guess, I mean, you really have to figure out what you're comfortable yeah. doing and what yeah. you're not doing. And you have to really love what you're doing. Yes. Love what you're doing, but that also widen your network of people. I think also I'm someone that loves to keep things very close to the vest. So being able to rely on your circle of people close to you of like where you need help or what you're trying to like, I'm thinking about this, I'm not sure, but then widening the network. Um, networking is a, a sport and it must be played well. And it, it's, it's interesting when I opened up myself to network more with people that I just had never even maybe just new friends. It was just amazing what came my way of just being open and really being allowing things to come to me in a way that I probably hadn't in earlier on in my career. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, it was crazy because Emeka and I were just in, in Paris and in London together, and I'm not kidding, whether we were on an escalator in London, people would be like, yo, Mecca, what? hey, what's going on? Because he's been on tour. In Paris, and we were in, like, eight times, eight times, eight random times, people would just, like, cross in the street in Paris, and they'd, like, everyone knows this guy it was like ridiculous and I think that you know putting yourself out there to meet people whether it's at museums whether it's doing odd jobs whether it's doing like Emeka said doing every single job even to UPS at night like that's how you fall in and meet people and I, um, I always encourage people to just get out there and do things and live life because 
I think a lot of a lot of people come to me and they're like, I'm going to this networking seminar and I'm going to meet people. I'm like, I promise you that anyone at a networking seminar was not the one yelling at a Mecca across the street. Like, no one's like, yo, I saw you at that thing at 26th Street and you gave me your card. So, I mean, you really got to put yourself yeah. out there. Yeah, it's like, for me, it was just kind of came about like being very like, I don't feel like I'm the most personable person. I'm not like a people person, <laughs> but but I was always I always see myself as somebody who is generally like good to people, you know? So it's like you don't know who anybody's going to be. And I don't take that as like, well, let me be manipulative and figure out whether the intern is going to be the CEO or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But it's about like okay. having that sort of like that uh that ability to be approachable uh, that even if that intern uh had meant no purpose to you you still like congenial it's like i'd see so many people who just like set up these barriers because they don't think somebody is going to be worth something to them and that being open to whoever it is can be just opening yourself up the possibility you know, so anybody can be that one person to change your life. Any situation you can, you are in. Anytime you leave the house, you don't yeah. know what is going to happen to you when you leave the house. So it's really about being open to any opportunity that comes to you once you step out of the door, and any open to whatever opportunity that a person can present you. You know, so and pay it forward because also I, I do try to you know make the time to have a coffee give advice where I can, because someone did that for me. Because I, I am not here by, you know, I just pull myself up my own bootstraps. Like, I don't know that story, that wasn't me, because there was always someone there that made a connection, made a call, helped me out, gave me some advice, and, and I think definitely paying it forward and putting that good back is important. Espe- yeah. Especially when there's people I know that look at me and they don't see a lot of us in the agency world I came from. They were like, oh my God, can I get a chat? I'm like, sure, I get it. Because yeah. I was the only one. <laughs> For sure. And it's like a lot of people treat like doing a favor as like a transactional relationship where they're like, well, I did this thing for you. So now you have to do this thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like if someone if you have an opportunity and somebody needs an opportunity, then it doesn't really cost you anything to make that connection. And you and you shouldn't have an expectation of getting anything back. So you Things will come back to you if it's if, if you know if it's necessitated. But like, why would you withhold an opportunity from somebody else if because you expect something? You know what I'm saying? Because I don't. There's nothing that I want. I don't want anything from anybody except for when I want something for somebody. <laughs> but <laughs> but when you want that thing, it's not about like creating a transaction relationship. Hopefully, if you put enough positive energy out into the world, then somebody's willing to like do you that favor. You know, and that favor shouldn't have to be like something that you somebody has to like pay for with a pound of flesh. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think when you, um, especially like when you like something, when you know something. I, what was really interesting with Emeka was um, he was the the first person in an extremely long time, especially hiring him at the level that I hired him. That when I offered the job, he was like, "All right, I'm going out to my desk right now." Like, he was like, yes, and and that's, I think, you know, a lot of um, people get told things like, oh, if you get offered a job, you know, play it cool, 
be like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I need three or four days to really think about this. And I loved it that he was like, I want to work here. He's like, he literally, he was like, I'll go choose my desk right now. <laughs> and it was so nice. It was like, why not? And I, I yeah. did that yeah. when I got my first job at American Express, like before she could even offer me the job, I was like, yes. And then I was like, shit, I hope, I hope she was Let me play a cool offering yeah. me the job. But um, that could be a way to get a job, by the way. <laughs> But um, pretend like he worked there. But yeah, like if you love something, do it yeah. and and just say yes. And um, and you you worry about the other stuff later. It'll fall into place. And and then if it doesn't fall into place, that's still okay too. You know, like you probably learn just as much from your mistakes, if not more. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. And it's I, it's fine. I would look back on them and like, oh, I wish I hadn't done this X, Y, or Z. But we all know that story, like everything you've done in your past has led you to exactly where you are. And I, I had to trust that I am exactly where I'm supposed to be and not going, oh, I wish I hadn't done that and wasted time on that. Because, you know, that's, it, that's learnings. I'm, I am happy for all the bad bosses, all the bad situations. It wasn't fun at the time, but it, it really it's, it has me here. And I, I'm definitely a much better person because of it. Yeah, I mean, like, I would say, like, up until like maybe a couple months ago, I would say like I've never had a mentor in my life. I've never had somebody who had like the responsibility of teaching me who I need to be in like the next form of my life. And then I think uh, I've thought about it, and then I was like, I've been around a lot of people who let me watch them win mm-hmm. and let me watch them fail. Mm-hmm. So my mentorship was really just being in situations with people and watching them do what they did. I learned how, who I didn't want to be from people who were horrible. And I learned who I wanted to be from people who were good to me. And I kind of tried to like emulate the people who I feel felt like had the qualities that I wanted to have within myself. And I tried to distance myself from people Mm -hmm. who weren't in, in my best interest. So like, and brought you to a place where you could kind of discern when you when you deal with people like I know I don't want this but you also know you don't need it yeah you know so you don't I don't need to have bad people in my life people have like shitty friends and I I don't understand why you have a friend that you don't like (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know like why do you stay in a relationship that you don't want to be in yeah because people have this need for some sort of stability but stability in negativity is not really good for you yeah so it's like i had learned that through just like meeting so many people across the course of my life and having to deal with people from internationally or had mm-hmm. to like we've been sleeping on the same bus together for like a good year it's like i you kind of have to really learn how to deal with people and so you kind of have to learn how to like uh separate yourself mm-hmm. distance yourself from people but also like uh, uh attract yourself to more people And you, what's so tough coming from the agency world is um, you don't own your creative destination, you know, like it really is like you're coming up with stuff and you're hoping that a client loves it, Mm -hmm. but you don't really get to to decide. You're not the decider. No, I mean, everything you do is on behalf of the client and that's things that they buy and they don't buy because the work is on behalf of them so i always feel badly for a lot of my creatives at the time it's like oh there's so much good stuff on cutting room floor 
so to speak, but the client still owns those ideas. It's not like we can just pick them back up and say, oh, try it again. And that, that's tough because that's a, that's a tough pill for you know, people that are working so hard and giving so much of their all. And it's like, you know, clients can be tough, but it's a, it's a tough it's a tough business, but it's also people find it very rewarding because it's like you pick yourself up. It's like, let's go, the next, the next. It's almost like an adrenaline high. I realize that. Yeah. It is wanna, such that you're like, oh, I'm a junkie for the agency world. <laughs> yeah, because you want to, I remember, because um, I grew up on an island off yeah. the coast of Georgia, and I didn't know that, like, I watched ads, but I never thought that someone yeah. made them. And then I watched a show called Nothing in Common with Tom Hanks, and he was at, mm. like, a Leo Burnett agency yeah. in Chicago. And um, in the movie, he would throw pencils up into the ceiling. <laughs> and I remember when I got out of school and I had an interview with Ogilvy and Mather yeah. advertising, and I got there and there were pencils in the ceiling and there was like a sketch on the floor of, a, they had done a chalk outline oh, yeah. of a body and it was supposed yeah. to be the client that they hated. And yeah. I was yeah. like, I just want to be in an environment yeah. where people throw pencils in ceilings yeah. and mock their clients by pretending yeah. like they've died a violent death yeah. on the yeah. floor. Yeah. And because that fuels you yeah. and, and sometimes that's enough, you know? Yeah. yeah, we've had people that would sleep in the office. I mean, they would work until yeah. 3 a.m. and they would you know, go to sleep for a few hours and get back up about seven and they would do that probably two or three days in a row. And you think about that, the toll on that person's life physically and mentally and spiritually. Well, because yeah. it's not just about who you're working for. It's who you're working with. Yes. Because yes. like O&M, you did sleep on the floor. Yeah. But was, there was a client pitch the next night. You were absolutely sleeping on the floor. But we had these really fun people that we were sleeping on the floor yeah. when they were throwing pencils in the ceiling. Like we were having fun, you know, yeah. and it really, so I think, you know, a lot of times when you are looking for your next career path, like it, it starts off with like the company that you want to work for, the kind of job that you want to work, work for. But then it's like finding what the culture is like the there and who those yeah. people are. It is. I mean, I, I will say LinkedIn is another place too, where it was the first place I had never really interviewed and talked to the leadership team that most all of our conversations are about the culture, about the people and the culture. And they were like serious about it in a way that even I felt like I need to get rid of some of my agency dysfunction because I don't want to bring that, you know, like, wow, people do really care about employees and values and it's not like that poster on the wall. So I, I'm, I'm feeling super fortunate right now, to be honest, yeah. Cool. What? <laughs> and I did not go on tour with anybody. <laughs> I know, I feel like I didn't need a, who's my celebrity, I don't have any celebrity friends. Yeah. A celebrity sighting. Well, I mean, like, but like, I would, like, how did you deal with like, getting ideas chopped down all the time? Just like, that's, yeah. if the, your output is your yeah. creativity, it's like, you're putting all of who you are into this thing, and yeah. then somebody's saying that's not enough. And for me, because I was on the, the business side slash, slash client side, so my role was to tell my creative person, oh, yeah, it didn't work, <laughs> didn't fly, and to try to be motivational to that creative person and say it was the work was good, it didn't meet these objectives, but sometimes that was complete BS. It did meet the objectives. The client just didn't want to buy it. Right. And you know, it was tough, but it was also knowing my, letting my creatives know that I was gonna fight for the work. I mean, my creatives knew that if we were going in to pitch an idea, I was gonna have their back. And I was gonna go down with them, so to speak. And uh, that, that gave us a good sense of rapport that I wasn't like trying to sell them out. But 
there'd be a lot of burnout. There, it's, it's interesting. I had one great creative person that worked with me, at, uh, J. Walter Thompson. He was so good, so talented, great writer. And I just said, dude, you are not cut out for this business. You should go do something else. Because it's, you're, it was, I could see his light diminish each day. And now he has a best-selling book that he told me I'm the reason why he did it. So I'm like, yeah, that makes hey. me feel good. So, yeah, but it's tough. It's tough. But it's, it's really interesting. Sorry. It's because um, you guys keep talking about these, like, overarching things that, like, no matter what job you're in, it's really important that you have those skill sets. Because yes. I'm thinking, like, when you're defending like as an account executive or whatever in that yeah. world you're defending your creatives idea yeah. i'm looking over here at laura my head of sales who's like she's got to go in front of our clients every day and defend our creative output as well and it's i think that what allows you guys to swim around and do so many different things and, and laura by the way was like a 20 years at condon so it was a totally different world before she came to Tibby, and you can really make all these turns if you really understand your core value, what you're bringing to the table. So if you were always bringing that ability to sell someone's idea, to really understand a creative vision, and then promote it to someone else, like that works in so many different industries. You know, really, yeah. like a lot of people, you know, when I talk to them about their careers, they're like, well, really want to be doing this right now <laughs> and I'm like okay but like Emeka told you all those crazy jobs he had like all these other jobs are building the skill set that you'll need in the job that you think that you want to be in which by the way might not even be the yeah. job that you want to be in by the time you get through doing all the other stuff because I don't think you thought you'd be here with us today and it's funny because like unless you're like a doctor or a lawyer then they're your your what you're doing, what you did for your uh, uh, bachelor's, you're probably not even doing that now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, like unless you need a specialist, mm -hmm. then you could be a generalist. Yeah. You know, so and I think that people should really try to do as much as they possibly can because I mean, I can only like say from my path, like I've done a. I've been in a bunch of different industries and I've met a bunch of different people, but they all kind of converge into this point of creativity where you're able to now like intermarry like a whole bunch of things that you've done over the course of your career. So I'm still talking to people who are from publishing that I met like 15 years ago when I was writing for a magazine or, you know, that working in music because, you know, I worked in music for such a long time and you're still like connecting those sorts of worlds. Uh, so it, the, the diversity of your experience really speaks to what's possible for you like in the future and what you can actually like the, draw experience from and so it's like you got to make sure that when you write your memoirs it's just interesting yeah. <laughs> and then you've been I mean, building relationships because as you navigate through all those different roles and paths like you can't be the asshole that's burning bridges because that comes back and i mean people are like oh it's it, it's it's a it's a small community out there i mean it's it's much smaller. The world's much smaller than I realize sometimes, you know? Go to Paris and London. Uh, right, right. But, you know, if you're like, you, you will know, find out how you were that person. It's funny. I look at some people sometimes like, why are they so successful? And they're a complete asshole. But then I realize it just comes back in different ways. So I, I do believe having real relationships with people is important and having empathy with pe for people because empathy is another skill set muscle thing. You're like, that helps you with clients, with your coworkers, with yourself of like, 
do I have real empathy for the situation this person's in? Because that's a real relationship too. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. Like some people can like use being an asshole as the fuel <laughs> yeah. to get to a place. Yeah. But that fuel can only get you so far, and and it only works for a, a certain few people. So yeah. it's like we all know people who are like who've made it up to like top positions, but they've really been like horrible to other people. But you can they but they use their horribleness as like the uh as the um as a launching pad so it's like oh well this guy's a this guy's a shitty dude he probably can uh he can probably run an office because he needs to be shitty to other people in order to run an office so only and only not that many people like respond to shittiness as like a personality trait (laughs) you know so this so the, the so it's really about like how 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 do you make yourself stand out? Do you make yourself stand out by being a shitty person? Or do you make yourself stand out by being somebody that everybody like, and not everybody has to like you, and it's okay if people don't like you because you can find a tribe. You find the people who like you. So it's like I find that a lot of people try really hard to be like uh, universally loved, <laughs> and that universal love kind of like means you don't have an opinion. You don't have like a real standpoint. Like yeah, you're, you're able the gap. To, you can sway with the with the wind. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, yeah it's, you got to be okay with certain people not liking you. Yeah, you got to be okay with with hey, if, some, if a shitty person doesn't like me, then I'm actually doing something right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> do you um, do you guys have any questions that we can like answer or anything? And please, oh, right yeah. here. Go ahead. <laughs> um, Do you need a mic? Uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm Anthony. I'm a recent graduate from Grand Public Art Design. Oh, wow. And great my school. background was fashion marketing, but I'm kind of like all of your fields have a relation to what I'm doing. I now work in an agency in mm. entertainment, mm-hmm. um, in film and television, and you all were mentioning burnout. Um, that's one thing, although I'm still relatively new, I just moved here like two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord! It's like two well. weeks. I mean, first of all, welcome to New York. I know. It's like two <laughs> weeks. <laughs> um, Are you on the creative side? Uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, it's cool. Uh, so, like, honestly, for me, in order to avoid burnout, it's just really about having, like, diversity in your routine. It's really just about, like, having a life outside of, like, what it is you're doing for your job. Like, I know so many people who, who like, my... Uh, my friend base is also my job base. Like the people that I work with, the people who I'm friends with, or like I only go to like job related things. Like they, they really like center their life in what it is that they're doing for a living. And it's about expanding those boundaries. It's about like having your own group of friends, having your own group of interests. The things that make you interesting are the things you do outside of your job, not the things you do at your job. Your job is not you. You know, yeah, I um, I actually took nude figure drawing classes at the Guggenheim when I worked for American Express. (laughs) Like no one knew where I was going every Thursday, but 
Like that was my thing. And, and I loved it that I didn't share it with everyone. And it was really great. Yeah. And also just having honest conversations with your manager, making sure you're actually, you're, you're doing the job at hand. You have to be doing that. Um, but also utilizing a way to do things outside the office to help fuel your creativity. Because also as a production coordinator, you're like going to the museum, going to different conferences, going to events. And there's plenty of free things in New York to help you get outside the office, but also can help you in your job and give you a chance to breathe. And hopefully maybe your team can do activities as well. I mean, I think agencies are trying to get better about things like that, but sometimes you can be the, the person, the ringleader to start that because those are also great you know, training opportunities. I also would say starting out is, um, I think a lot of people starting out assume that their bosses have it all figured out. And once you become a boss, you realize that like the bosses don't have it all figured out. Parents don't have it all figured (laughs) out when you have babies. Like we don't all have it figured out. And so, um, you know, I have a lot of people come to me and they're like, my boss should, they should know. And I'm like, they should and they shouldn't and so it actually is a two-way street and I think one of the really great things as um you know if I could do things over is every time or not every time don't you'll be like super annoying but (laughs) you know ask your boss why why you're doing something and and ask them so that number one you understand the bigger picture rather than just a task but also there's a lot of times that when your boss starts to articulate what it is that you're doing and why they might actually change course. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, I know like a lot of times I'll give out all this stuff and then later on I'll see someone working super late and I'm, they're like, well, you know, you asked me and I'm like, oh shit, yeah, I didn't even, yeah. especially in the creative space. I didn't space. need that anymore yeah, and I didn't tell change. you. And, yeah. you know, so, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Courtney. I love the big, pro- that big project like, you, you know. just did, like, psych. But, um, <laughs> But anymore. it's good to learn, and it, and it does, and it, in a way, it lets your it lets your boss kind of rethink things too, or or just make sure that they know what you're doing and 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 the scope of it and how much work it is and how to prioritize it, and then go draw. Hang some. in there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> went through the same you can talk about <laughs> yeah, like. I, um, I mean for for me it is um it it boils down to those adjectives those that we kept that these guys kept bringing up you know that um hungerness for uh experiencing different things and that curiosity for why things are the way that they are and you know we have never in my 22 years uh, since I started Tibby, I have never uh, had an employee have to exit because they didn't know what two plus two was. And, you know, people rarely ever, ever, ever fail at the, um, the actual like metrics of the job. 
where they fail is by lack of um, just pure unbridled enthusiasm to do the job and from a willingness to like really get dirty and and learn from their mistakes and be a great player with others in the sandbox you know it's when you're in a small company you're very exposed I mean when some people come in and they're like you know Sheila did this and I'm like well why the fuck didn't you know what Sheila was doing you sit right next to her like what the hell are you doing and you know no one gets away with throwing someone under a bus and so I think that um you know, we people that are real team players are really important. You know, it's team playing, curiosity, and freaking like bounce back up. You know, yeah. the you take so many hits in any job. I mean, I think retail's brutal, but everything's brutal nowadays, yeah. and you really have just got to like be able to move with it. And and how to inspire others. I mean, that's, that's, those are inspired sometimes as part of the role description, but I, I look at that and I look at it for myself of, are they really passionate about wanting to inspire themselves, others around them, but then mentoring? Because some people just aren't, that's not their thing. They don't want to do that. So I agree, teamwork. I think teamwork's always a word, but it's sometimes people just don't know how to really act upon it, up and down, and how to do that. Um, and I think also, yeah, the inspiration and have people that want to have, um, that can have tough conversations because it's not going to be roses and cupcakes every day. And I realize there's some really good managers that cannot have tough conversations. And I, and I was like, wait, you know what? It's like, that's, yeah, that's that, and it's, and it does no one, that's a disservice to them and to their team if they cannot have a tough conversation about performance, the business, whatever it is, um, and not in a, in a, in a truly way that's succinct and clear and action focused versus like you suck bye Emeka like you know but that's 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 top of mind for me sorry about that <laughs> yeah. um I find that the further you get along in your career the more your job is to have an opinion and a lot of people don't have opinions about things or they try to parrot your opinion in order to be where you want them to be at any given time so it's really just about having somebody in a space who's willing to put their foot down on an opinion like this is the route that we should go down because the being wishy-washy is expensive <laughs> you know like trying to do too many things with one specific activation it becomes very uh, time consuming and costly and you know just in life you like you don't want a friend that's always going to be the 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 reflection of whatever you, you want your friend to tell you you're fucking up <laughs> you want you want your uh your uh your vp of marketing to tell <laughs> to tell you that this is a bad decision yeah. you know because you so the willingness to not lead somebody in the wrong direction because you want to get a paycheck okay. like that's kind of what i kind of look for in like other people not just in like my professional life but in my personal life i want somebody to tell me like yo you're wrong you know that makes for good conversation that's super important yeah yeah Well, I, um, <laughs> I think that um, 
you know, it, honestly, you you have to be so attuned with what's going on in the world. And I think that um, for me, I when I started Tibby, it was because I was interested in having a business and I was interested in, um, you know, selling trends. And then somewhere along the way, I really, really, really fell in love with... Um, with just fashion in general, and um, and I loved creating my own style and finding my own style. And then once I really found my style, I wanted for other people to be able to find their own style as well. But I think that, uh, and that's great, and everyone can find all different styles, but for us in this very cluttered, crazy world, I think you have to be very clear with your point of view and um and really get that message out there and this all coincided i think with a time in the world where authenticity is king and we have um the more confident you get the more you feel like you can really take a stand for something and we you know 22 years later have found ourselves in a position where we are not a huge company by any stretch, but we are, and we can fact check this afterwards, but we are, I think, the largest uh, privately, completely privately owned brand in America where we've never taken a dime from any outside investors and where we really do have an office that is real people and it really is still all shipped from Georgia and my mom really still is you know unpacking stuff in the warehouse and so all of a sudden it was like you know what it's cool to tell people this real stuff and and that you can see it as a marketing gimmick whatever but for me and all of us I find it extremely liberating to just constantly be telling the truth <laughs> and um and what's been great about Emeka since he's joined is he's been really um fostering that and really promoting it like you just tell it the way that it is and then we'll get this great team that we have around us to take that message and really run with it and um and i have to say like being honest every day in my stories and on instagram and everything it's so much easier than making shit up and um so there you go that's i so i can just speak to how we did it so Well, I'll, I'll kick it off. I think f for me, and, and even Mecca mentioned this, there was, there was the ultimate belief that I, I knew it could happen. I just didn't know what it was. I just knew, as I, I think I said, I knew it wasn't what I was doing before. I knew I needed to close that chapter. But you can't just sit there in your house and like think, oh, this is gonna come to me. It, it was kind of getting out there. It was getting out there, having coffees, having conversations, meeting people and, and really just honestly being interested in what they were doing and what was going on. It wasn't like, help me find a job. It was just like, hey, what's going on? Um, so, so for that, I think that was the motivation. I think going back to what Amy mentioned about someone that's hungry and 
always curious so you have to kind of be that way with your your life as well of what i've got to figure out what's next but it's on you to do the work it's not someone's not going to come and like oh here is your path so so for me it's you know there are going to be those moments where you're like i don't know what's next it does look dark but you know it was literally the prayer and meditation and just continuing to keep going and just knowing that and believing that something was next because for me leaving the agency world I many times like you know what I'm just gonna take this next agency job. I cannot not be working. I'm just gonna take and go back to what I know. But I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I was I was firm with myself, and I I had to bet on myself. And I think when you know you can bet on yourself, and you know what you've done, and you know what you know, you know who you are, and whatever your beliefs, whose you are, however you want to go with that. But um, but yeah, you have to kind of just don't stop. And if you feel like you're gonna you know give up and need the help reach out to that network of people and let them know you're struggling, you know? That's, that's cool, too. Uh, something I realized really early in my life is that worrying doesn't help you do anything. So you could be destitute and you can't sit home and worry about being destitute because it's not going to put any more money in your pocket, you know? So... I remember when I was like at my worst times, and I was like, "Yo, I'm dead broke. I, I, I don't even have money for food." Like that sort of that sort of brokenness. I would just like, "Well, let me just go take a walk. Let me just go outside and walk around, and maybe that will be something that will like spur something." Let me call a friend and go hang out with some people. Maybe the conversation that I'm having with my friends is going to like spur something. Like, oh, uh, I know people who are like, you know having uh doing events or like, like you just try to f do as many things to get yourself in a space with other people who are you know active you know and and and, and doing things and positive things and like that sort of positive energy will hopefully if you're putting that out into the world and it'll like come back to you like those people have opportunities or they know somebody was opportunity or, or like the you know the the expanse of how an opportunity can come to you it's like you'll never know where an opportunity come can come from you just have to put yourself in a place where an opportunity can come to you so like closing yourself off because you're upset the world doesn't stop turning because you had a bad day or anything like that you really have to keep putting yourself out there so Honestly, it's just like the uh, consistency and like having like a really like really believing in yourself. Like you really have to believe that you're like the shit, <laughs> you know, then you believing in yourself that much will only like no one can believe in you for you. Like so you and no one's going to believe in you more than you do. So or they shouldn't. So like you should honestly just like have like a a belief in yourself that you can transpose into creating an opportunity and it's not like being not to say like be arrogant about yourself but it's about understanding what your positives are and also understanding what your negatives are and it's playing into the positive parts you know so that's kind of how at least my, my my personal journey Sense, like, they could see things with it, even though you're in 
Yeah, I mean, for, for me, because um, the role I'm in as, um, essentially my, my title is a little head of independent agencies of North America, which all that means is I'm working with agencies to help them use LinkedIn products. So for me, this, the sell was one, I had been on the agency side, so that was an interesting natural transition, but I didn't even know the role existed. It was something that they were like, hey, we were thinking about starting this role, but it was the basics about client relationships, having a curiosity about how businesses work and wanting to actually figure out how to solve problems. And I actually had on my vision board, that I did in January, which I forgot to mention that, I had really called forth wanting to get into tech. I just didn't know in what way and I wasn't sure how that might translate. So for a role like this of saying, taking all those many years of understanding agencies, understanding the pain points of those agencies because I was that person running an agency and now working with this multi-billion dollar global company that wants to work with those agencies, it was interesting but it was like, I still understand business I still want to understand marketing, and I'm, I have to learn the tech part because I'm not. That's not my thing. But I also put it out that I wanted. I'm okay with that. I want to continue to learn and grow because if I'm not learning and growing, I'm just stagnant, and that's not cool either. So I think it's about you know it was the path, but it was just those really transferable skills and being okay with navigating different industries, different cultures, global and national, and companies. Yeah. And you may not even realize what the triggers are for companies. Like you guys were asking about what was important to me at the senior level. But when I interviewed at Ogilvy and Mather and I was, um, and I went to University of Georgia, I was like, ah, and I was interviewing against all these people from Duke and, you know, you guys are like, and, um, and when I got the job, I asked, I was, talking to the woman from HR and I said you know what what was the thing that put you over the edge with me and she said you've been working since age 11 mm. she's like you told me that you had a paper route then you worked at the drugstore mm. then you bag groceries <laughs> and you and she's like honestly when you are starting out that I wish I knew how many um bad applicants were out there. I would have been so much more confident going out for a job because, you know, yeah. that first rung of what's your work ethic? That is yeah. where I am, I am telling you that base is where so many people fall out right away. Like they just freaking, they don't have a work ethic. Like they think they're clocking in and out and they're like, I've been told that, you know, and you're like, oh. and, and so, yeah. you know, just even establishing that you you want to work hard you will do whatever it takes because um you know like byron he's back there he's our art director he's one that painted this painting he uh came here this afternoon and really quickly made those things that are in the window and but he hung them up and he found the chains and he like I can't write all that in a job description like there is no way I wrote that like okay you need to go to the hardware store and buy these chains and find a ladder and figure that shit out and by the way that like you'll like give us your fine art too to hang up like not everything is ever in a job description. And that's why, like, we always tell people, once you walk through the doors of Tibby, like, we own you. And if there's, <laughs> but, but, like, I mean it, like, if you walk by and there's, I read in the New York Times, there's a thing they had, like, the corner office, and she said that one of the CEOs in the article said that she leaves a piece of paper in between the door and the desk. 
and she sees which candidates walk in and actually pick up that piece of trash and drop it in the trash can. And it's, it's like being that alert. And, you know, even you guys know this, like, well, you don't, but like in our bathroom <laughs> in New York, like, I all the time, like, I'll see an employee, like, they'll just throw the, the uh, napkin down onto the floor and walk out. And I'm the, you know, paper towel. And, um, and I'm like, you know, and they didn't do it on purpose. Like it fell out of the trash can, but I'm like, okay. And then I'll like pick it up in front of them. And they're like, just walking out the door. And I'm telling you like that first rung, that first assistant level, those are the things that like hold people back. Like I really, like when people leave sometimes, I'm like, it's cause you can pick up the fucking paper towel. Like. <laughs> You know, the but basics. that paper towel stands for so <laughs> much more. It really does yeah. because that paper towel person is the one that like, you know, when you're in the trenches and, you know, who do you want in the trenches if you're going to go to war? I don't want paper towel chick in my trench with me. <laughs> you know, she's like, cause she's not even in the trench. She's like out doing whatever. So I'm telling you, like, if you work really hard, if you've got a brain and work really hard, you will get the job of your dreams like you will it's like what you what you do with it is then up to you but you'll get in the door You look very fashionable back there, so. <laughs> 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 I'm from home from work, and she'll be watching all your shit, and I'll be like, yo, let's go. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we have wow. a lot of fun doing that. I'll say that's the best part of the job. <laughs> that's the best part of the job, though. So, um, and Emeka will be having his, you'll have your first show with that's us. Yeah, Tibby shows are the best. Yeah. It's so yeah. exciting. It's really fun. So, anyways, well, thank you guys so much for for coming. So I hope that you liked it and that this was a good thing. I hope. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.